Okay, if you have a Bible, open it up. This is where we do that. Um, And we are in Matthew chapter 5, and we are in a series called the Sermon on the Mount. We seem to be, chapter 5 seems to go and go and go. I keep thinking that we're going to get to like chapter 6, and then, and then I look for the week, and it's like, oh yeah, there's, there's more, which is good. Um, we are looking at what to do as followers of Jesus when we are wronged. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in here. I'll put the verses up on the screen. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you... Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I have a friend, um, I'll go back for a second. I have a friend named Jordan, um, back where I used to live in Sacramento, and he uh, was in this group that I was kind of meeting in for a while a few years ago. We'd get together once a week, and we would just kind of hang out, and sometimes we'd talk about the Bible. Um, he was not a Christian, which will be probably kind of important for this story. Um, you, maybe you won't judge him as harshly, I don't know. Um, he was talking with me. One time he came to our, to our time together, and he said, hey, I have a confession to make. And um, even though you're not really my pastor, you're a pastor. And I don't know, this seems like something I should probably get off my chest. And I go, okay. So he says, uh, so he was working that day. He kind of has a work from home kind of a situation. He writes. He was actually in the process of writing a movie. And so he would go to this diner, Mel's, and he would just sit there in a, in a, in a booth for like hours and drink Diet Coke. He's addicted to Diet Coke. And he would write uh, this movie that he's writing. And so he's there for several hours doing this. And then he decides he's going to leave. So he goes and he gets in his car and he's sitting in his car and he's got his giant, they gave him a, they always give him like a big giant to go Diet Coke and this big gigantic styrofoam cup. And he's sitting there with that just to make it, make it home. You know, it's just got to get him home, that one cup. And he's sitting there like doing emails or texts or something on his phone before he gets out of his car. These people pull up next to his car and they open their car door you know, a little aggressively. And they hit his car with their car door. And all three people just get out and they just go inside Mel's. They don't say anything. And he is like furious. And he watches them walk in and get their seat and they walk right, there's the window of the restaurant right in front of him, walk over, sit down like right in front of his car, I think. And they sit down at the booth right there. And he's sitting there and he sees them and he's like, no way. So he gets out of his car And he walks over with his giant Diet Coke and he pulls the top off and he just, right in front of him, just (laughs) dumps it all over the top of their car. All over the top of their car. He puts the lid back on and he gets it. I think he, no, I remember he told me he, he threw the cup on top of their car afterwards, right? And then he gets back in the car and he leaves. And he comes directly from there to this group that we were having that night. And he goes... That was like the most satisfying feeling I've ever had, is what he said. He said, I've so, so satisfying. But I also feel kind of bad about it. So anyway, Ed, um, what's the deal with that? Is that okay? Um, Am I justified? That's kind of what he was saying, you know. He said, I just feel so bad, but I also totally deserved it. There is nothing, uh, it, it, it can often feel, we'll say, like there's nothing better than that feeling of being wronged. And writing that and going, they deserved it, right? And so Jesus is talking about one of the things that we kind of hold the most dear, which is our ability 
to even the score with people who have clearly wronged us. Now, what I like about the fact that Jesus is talking about this is this. Jesus is realistic. He is a realist, okay? Jesus is not just assuming that his followers are going to live happy, easy lives because they're disciples of his. He knows that they will encounter people and they will have things come up in life that will be hard. I can't stand people who say, only, only be positive all the time in every situation and never, ever think about the negative. I can't stand that. Because I think that people who say that, they're like, then, you'll, then, you'll, then your life will go well. Your life will go well if you only ever focus on the positive, right? The only problem with that is most of the time people are saying that they have chosen to insulate themselves from negative things or simply ignore things that are going on around them that are difficult. And they simply deny the fact that they're happening. And Jesus is not doing that. Jesus is a realist. He's saying... People will wrong you, and here's how you respond. But here's what's crazy about this. Well, first of all, the reason why Jesus is realistic and he's a realist about this is because of exactly what we're talking about at Christmas time, which is the fact that he came physically and he lived in the flesh. So he's actually lived through all this stuff that we deal with. And that's really, really important. We often kind of don't think about it that way. Maybe we just think he came in the flesh. That's great. That was part of the story, right? He came and lived in probably a poor family. His father was a carpenter. It did not look this nice when it started out. Okay, he was in basically a dirty barn, okay, where he was born. Not even in a barn, but in a dirty place full of animals that was probably very cold. And he, uh, he was born to a woman who had gotten pregnant out of, uh, out of marriage, right? Um, and uh, which is not good. Um, and regardless of how much of the story people knew or didn't know, you can bet that there was definitely a lot of judgment that went with that. Jesus grew up the son of a carpenter, and he grew up in a very religious community, um, and he was a big part of that community as a Jew, but at the same time, you get a sense from his ministry right out of the gate that he is speaking a lot against the abuses that happen within that religious world. So he is, uh, he is not only lived in the flesh, but he's lived in the flesh amongst groups of people that are not always easy to live with, who don't seem to get it, what God is talking about when he talks about being righteous, okay? So Jesus is very realistic, and he talks about what it is to have enemies. Jesus is a good person to look at when it comes to enemies, because he had plenty of enemies. But the other thing that happens when you encounter this passage is you go, it feels anything but realistic. It feels like the least realistic thing I've ever read, right? At least realistic thing Jesus ever taught on. It's that one part in the Sermon on the Mount where you're like, if I was a disciple, I would have gotten up and been like, hey, I'm just gonna take a break real quick, process some of this stuff and get out of here for a couple minutes. I'll come back and I'll just catch up later with whatever it was I missed, right? This is the one you wanna miss, probably. Because this is the one where you go, Jesus, you gotta be kidding me. And, and then, by the way, why do you keep going with examples? We can just get one, that's fine, right? But he keeps going example after example after example, and every one of them makes it seem less realistic. No one can live this way. No society can function this way. Nothing can work this way. But it can, and that's the beauty of what it is that he's talking about. I want to start with the first verse and a half of this when we look at it. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lex talionis, the oldest known sort of rule about how society ought to work, especially when it comes to keeping everything in line and in order. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It exists outside of the Jewish culture, and yet we read about it in God's word as well. Now, this rule was instituted, believe it or not, not to give people the opportunity to get back at others, but to keep them from going crazy when getting back at others. Because if someone 
you know, gouged out your eye. I guess that happened. When someone gouged out your eye, you would go a little over the top, believe it or not, in your anger. And you would not just gouge out their eye, but you would kill them. Or you would uh, cut off not one hand, but another hand, right? If they knocked out your tooth, you knocked out all their teeth, right? That's what people would do. Believe it or not, people did that back then. They got a little carried away with their retribution. And so this rule is meant more than anything to limit it, to say, like, you can't go worse than they did. Okay, that's it. We'll just start there. So Jesus is reminding them of something everyone knows about Jewish or non-Jewish. And he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The key to everything Jesus is teaching about it is in those words, do not resist the one who is evil. Here's why. First of all, there are people who are evil. So he is talking about people who are legitimately doing bad things. This word evil, when you translate it, means wicked, depraved, immoral, okay? Does not mean unlucky or accidentally careless, okay? Wicked, evil, immoral. So the person who does things that are that bad, how do we respond? Do not resist them. Now, when you translate resist, it is the Greek word anthistomy. And what it means is to oppose someone. And that's important, okay? Because what Jesus is saying is this. To oppose someone is to, is to like be hostile towards them. To oppose someone is to make that person your enemy. And what Jesus is saying is this. He is saying when someone does something evil against you, they are not your enemy. That does not make them your enemy. That makes them someone who's doing something evil, clearly, because he acknowledges it. But you don't oppose that person. You don't get to have enemies, regardless of the things that people are doing to you. The word enemy isn't used anywhere in this passage. It's not used until the next passage we'll look at in a few weeks, where he talks about what to do in the situations where people have made the decision that they will be an enemy or that we will be their enemy. One of the things we encounter... So this idea of, 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 of opposing is essentially saying, because you're my enemy, you're over here, okay? And I'm over here. The relationship between us, it has ended. You're on the bad side. My son, I'm going to talk about him every week. Son's in kindergarten, because, you know, stories abound, right? In kindergarten, learning about motion right now. Okay, he comes from school. I say, what'd you do at school today? He says, we're learning about motion, okay? A couple of weeks ago, I said, the first time I asked him, what do you learn? He said, we learned about wrecking balls. And I was like, yeah, that's a really good way to learn about motion, right? Uh, tried to look up some YouTube videos of wrecking balls. Thanks, Miley Cyrus. That doesn't work anymore. <laughs> so that didn't happen. And uh, this week... What are you learning about? Motion. What are you learning about motion? Push and pull. Now, I keep thinking that, he's, that I'm going to be able to answer the like, basic questions he asks me as a five-year-old child, but I can't because he says things like this. Dad, what is push and pull? What's the difference between push and pull? Try explaining that concept without using the word push or the word pull. It's like impossible. You sit there just stumped like... Well, buddy, you push things that you, that you don't want, and you pull things that you want, right? Pulling is when you want to bring something closer to you, and pushing is when you want to get it away from you. That's the best I can think of. And so then I start coming up with examples of them. What's something that you push? What's something that you push? The funny thing is all the examples of push were people, 
And then when like, what's something that you want? It was things, right? So there you go. That's, you know, all, everything you need to learn in life you learn from a five-year-old, right? Like, so all the people are in the way of my things, basically. And that's why I push them away and why I want more of the things, right? Push and pull, right? And as I'm explaining it, I'm like, yes, this is the nature of opposition, is pushing. And so what Jesus is saying to the disciples here is he is saying that there will be those who are wicked and will do evil things against you. And when they do them, they do not make them your opponent. Now, what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of compulsion, that you are forced to do something because of something else that happens and that living for the kingdom means that's not how your life works anymore and that that's actually a good thing. You don't, we even talked about it in marriage and divorce, right? You don't have to get married. You're not, that's not a compulsive thing you do, even though in the culture at the time you had to. And when someone wrongs you and breaks your marriage vows, guess what? You don't have to get divorced. You're not forced to get divorced. We talked about oaths. You don't have to make an oath about something when you want to do it. Jesus' attitude towards oaths is like, why bother? Why do it? Why? Why? Why do you do it? Why all the time? Why with all the oaths? You don't have to. You don't need to be compelled to do it. You can, you can keep your word. And guess what? You don't have to take an oath. Isn't that great? And as he talks about this, he's saying someone can do something wrong to you and they can treat you so badly and they can hurt you and they can make you upset. And guess what? They don't have to be your enemy. Now, for many of us, this doesn't feel freeing. This feels like a giving up of our rights. Because we go, no, 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 I have a right to marry. I have a right to get divorced. I have a right to make promises. I have a right to see somebody as my enemy. And so when we read these things of Jesus, we feel like he's restricting us. He's taking away rights that we have. Come on, Jesus, if there's one right that I should have, it's that when someone wrongs me, I protect myself, right? I make right on what has happened and what I have done. But Jesus says there is no compulsion for this anymore. And that is tremendously freeing for us. It ought to be. Because we live in a world, in a reality in which without the kingdom of God, there is compulsion. You do need to do these things. It makes no sense whatsoever to not respond this way and to live this way and to act this way. We often want to take things that Jesus teaches and find ways to figure out answers to complicated moral problems and ethical situations. This is one of those. We look at the teachings of the Sermon on the Mountain, we say, okay, so what do you do here? What do you do here? What do you do here in this situation, in this scenario, in this situation? What are the ethics? What are the morals? What are the rules? Would Jesus allow fighting and wars? If somebody breaks into my home, should I protect my family? Is somebody allowed to get divorced when they're in an abusive relationship? Are Christians allowed to take oaths? But Jesus isn't teaching a class on ethics and how to perfectly establish rules that you follow in every instance. He is telling us what righteous people look like, and then he's letting us hold our own life up in comparison to that person. So when someone is evil, they are not called an enemy for this person. And so you hold your life up to that example that he, that he paints the picture of here, the illustration. Now, this is good news, believe it or not, because chances are you will at some point find yourself on the other end of this situation. You will probably at some point do something wrong to someone else and will justify them wanting to see you as their enemy. And this is what's so crazy is you get down on your knees and you pray and you say, God, this person is doing this in my life. This person is causing me this kind of pain. And guess what? If that person goes home and that person gets down on their knees and that person prays about you doing something similar, he hears both. 
which is why we don't have enemies. Because Jesus loves these people too. Because there are not good guys and bad guys. Because Jesus knows that the real enemy is not the person doing the thing. It is the evil one, the real enemy, Satan, which is where the sin comes from. And so rather than see his children villainize one another permanently by saying, I mean, because this is how the enemy ultimately wins, is people are tempted, people do bad things, people mess up in very big, painful ways, and then they ignore the role that the enemy has in that, and, and they keep focusing on one another, and he has now won. That's why Satan is called the great deceiver, because it's like he's not even there. He's not even a part of it. It's just this terrible person in front of me doing these terrible things. The heart of the Christian is becoming more and more softened towards those not on their side of things. We often want to think that God has an adversarial view of the world. That if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that you now have that view. That it's divided into the good guys and the bad guys. But that's not the picture that Jesus paints. And so in every concrete situation, we have to ask ourselves, not, did I do the specific things in Jesus' illustrations? But... Am I being the kind of person that Jesus' illustrations are illustrations of? Not am I doing the specific thing he points out every single time, but am I being the kind of person that this is an illustration of? He gives examples of this, very specific examples. He starts with, he starts with a doozy. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So just to explain the physics of how this works, and I'm not going to have anybody come up here. This is, I believe, and most commentators would agree, based on the assumption that most people are right-handed. So if you're a left-handed person, I apologize, but this is Jesus' teaching, not mine. Okay. If you are facing a person, and you are right-handed, and you slap them on the right cheek, how in the world would you possibly do that? With the back of your hand. What Jesus is describing is not combat. He's not describing combat. He's not describing a physical fight between two people, which is how most people will often reinterpret this. And they would say, oh, are we supposed to defend ourselves? Are we to protect ourselves? What he's talking about is this. A person standing face to face with you and slapping you with the back of their hand on the side of your face. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but how many of us in our adult lives will say, have been slapped by the back of someone's hand on the side of our face. Not many, hopefully. It is the gravest of insults. Jesus is speaking to a group of people who live in an honor and shame-based culture, which means that dishonorable things are the worst things. And there is no greater dishonor in all of like life than a person standing there face-to-face -face with you in front of others backhanded slapping you to the face. This is the greatest insult that you could receive, which is what Jesus is talking about. He begins with insult. He begins with shame. He begins with someone robbing you of the most valuable thing in your life. And by the way, by extension, your whole family that's connected to you is your honor. When someone robs you of that in that situation, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. Now, what's interesting about this culture was the typical response to this was not what you would expect. The typical response was not, you punch them in the face. The typical response was, and you, and sir, I will see you in court. That's how people responded, right? 
which is like not really that cool of a response. Uh, if you saw that in a movie, you'd be like, that guy's kind of lame. Oh, sure you will. See him in court. Okay, right? Someone just slapped you in the, side, in the face with the back of their hand. Come on, that's it. I'll see you in court. But that was exactly what people did because you took someone to court because everyone saw it happen. It was public. And you made them pay you a whole lot of money to make up for the embarrassment and the shame that they brought upon you by slapping you with the, side, the back of their hand in front of everyone. And so instead of the typical response, which is, I will see you in court, and I'm now about to get all of your money, the response is to turn the other cheek. This is coming from Jesus, someone who was persecuted greatly in front of other people. Most of the persecution Jesus would ever undergo is in public. He is talking to disciples who themselves would be beaten and slapped and hurt in front of other people publicly. And what he's saying to them is that when that happens to you, rather than seek retribution for the shame they have brought upon you, turn the other cheek. Why? I mean, how and why could you possibly live that way? Because a person slapping you on the face does not bring you shame. It does not take away your honor. And so you don't have to respond that way. You're not compelled under compulsion to react that way as others would be. This was probably religious persecution that he's speaking to them about. And if you want to think of an example of what this would be like, you do not have to think very hard at this time of year because here is all I will say. If you walk into any kind of an establishment and you feel the moment you walk in that they are not honoring this season in the way that you think they ought to, what is your first response? Now, I'm not telling you that it is okay for someone to not honor this holiday in the way it should be, that you should ignore everything that people do. But what is your response? When you feel wronged and you feel persecuted and you feel like you have had your honor taken and the honor of something that you care about the most, is your gut response, not even what you say or do, but how you feel, is your gut response to turn the other cheek? Or is it to seek to right that thing that has happened? Is it to seek to walk away and never walk back in and say, well, you can bet you're never getting my business again? This is one example of lots of examples of the kinds of persecution that you might feel as somebody who is a believer. And the question is, as much as we talk about this teaching of Jesus, he's not actually really talking about people punching us all the time. He's talking about people frustrating us and bringing us shame by the way they treat the things that matter to us. How do we respond? And Jesus' good news is that we are not compelled to respond by seeking retribution, by seeking to go to others and make sure that they know the shame and the dishonor that someone has caused you. He goes on and he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. We've all been there, right? You're being sued for your tunic and you have to give them your coat as well. So, again, in the Jewish culture, when people would sue, they would often sue for material goods because you didn't just have bank accounts full of money. And they would sue, and they could take the very shirt off your back, your tunic. They could completely take it away from you. But the one thing that they couldn't take from you, no matter how much they owed you, no matter how wrong you were, or how much you owed them, was your cloak. Your coat was everything. And because it got cold at night, it was the only way that you stayed warm enough to not die when you were sleeping. And so the Old Testament stipulates that if someone wins a case against you in court, 
that the very most that they can get is that you give them your coat until nighttime that day. I guess that's a big deal. They wear it around like, hey, I won. Look, I got it. But then you have to give it back before it gets too cold because they need it. And they are not allowed to keep it. There were rules and things in place to make sure that people would not take advantage of you beyond what was reasonable if they won a case in court. And what Jesus is telling the disciples is those rules are not what will protect you. Those rules are not what will keep people from going too far and taking advantage of you. And so they do not mean the same thing for you that they do for others who believe that they depend on them. The rules of your legal system and your government will not be the thing that protects you in this instance. And so you don't, you can give more to that person. He goes on and he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This speaks to living in an occupied territory at the time where Roman soldiers could at any point stop you and say, you have to walk a mile, you have to carry something for me, you have to transport me. They could force you to do it. And you just had to. And believe it or not, people weren't really excited about this. People didn't like being stopped in the middle of what they were doing and having the very Roman guards that were occupying the place they lived in and governing over them by force, telling them, you now have to help me. Stop everything you're doing. Now, here's the deal. Of all the people I've ever read about in history, Jesus had like the busiest schedule ever, it seems, okay? He was constantly walking from place to place, and when he wasn't healing people miraculously, he was sharing the gospel and seeing people be converted. So for Jesus to say, stop what you're doing and help them, and not just go what you are obligated to do and how far you're obligated to go, but to go one more mile is a big deal that he's the one saying that. If the government would subject his people to service that they find insulting and beneath them, he says, go and to do it. Now, this is an issue specifically of the idea of liberty. Jesus is talking about liberty, about your freedom. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've put in a situation where your very freedom and your liberty, something that we value in our country more than any other right, as we should because we have more freedom and liberty, than I think almost anywhere else. We have tremendous amount of freedom and liberty, and so we value it, and we know the value of it. And the overwhelming majority of people who will ever read or hear this teaching of Jesus will not hear it while living in a place where they have the kind of liberty and freedom that we have. And so Jesus is talking about that, and he's saying when someone comes and forces you to do something, that you have the freedom, that you should not do this thing. With what attitude do you do it, and how do you do it? And Jesus could have said, you fight you fight, and you say, I won't. Or you do what everyone did at the time, which is, well, you can make me, but you can't make me happy. And instead, he says, you do it with the spirit of willingness, and you go a second mile. The going the second mile isn't even as much saying you literally have to go double whatever they tell you, as much as to say you have to do it with the attitude of, oh, we don't need to stop here. You want to keep going? Because of the attitude with which we do that thing that that person is calling us to do. Everyone has something they think government expects of them or others that is unreasonable. Everybody, everybody I know has something that we think the government expects this of me or it expects this of others and it is unreasonable. And we do it because we have to, but we're not happy about it and we make sure that people know that. 
I had a friend who was once, we were in this small group, and he was, we were just kind of hanging out, and he was saying like uh, to the group that his plan, he was really into fishing. His plan was to start a business in which he would fish for work, right? But he wouldn't, he would just go fishing. But because of the way that he would set up this business, it would keep him, it would basically make it possible for him to not give any money away in taxes. And he was like, if I start some kind of a business and I do it a certain way, some guy was telling me I can go fishing and I can buy all my fishing gear and all the stuff I want to do and I can do it in a way that I don't have to pay taxes anymore on what I earn. And he was like, and I shouldn't have to pay taxes on what I earn because frankly, the way they're spending the money and what they're doing with it is just completely ridiculous to me. And I'm like, you are very comfortably just admitting to this entire group of people that you are planning on deceiving whoever you possibly can because the end justifies the means, because we all know that this rule or this law or this expectation is totally unrealistic and unjustified. And we all know the reality of the fact that at any given political season even, right, as parties change and as administrations change and people change, things change. And at any point you might agree with the rules and at any other point you might not agree. And what we're really getting incredibly good at doing is making it very clear when we agree and when we don't agree with whatever currently is happening. And what Jesus is saying is when someone forces you to submit to and to be subjected to government and a rule that you don't agree with, what is the attitude with which you agree with it? Because let's face it, when you don't agree, they're your enemy, right? They're the evil, wicked person. I mean, you, you'll, you'd feel that way, right? Hey, Bill, uh, give me an example of somebody who's uh, an enemy. Well, there is that guy who slapped you in the face with the back of his hand the other day. Yeah, okay, that's a good example. How about you? Well, you know, honestly, like our government and all of the policies and all the things or whatever somebody might say, who cares about an individual? How about the people running our lives or something like that? This is exactly what a Jewish person was living in the midst of at the time. They were living in occupied territory. And Jesus' teaching to them is this. The spirit by which you live and you obey says everything about whether or not you're a disciple of mine. I think it's easy sometimes to make the assumption that being a disciple of Jesus means we're somehow above the laws and rules that others are under. That we say, like, I'm enlightened. I know more. I've got this book that gives me kind of cosmic grounds by which I can say this is right and this is wrong. And because of that, I don't have to do the things that other people have to do or live the way that other people are told they have to live. And what Jesus is saying here, I think, is really interesting because he's saying, I'm going to submit to these rules even when I think it's unreasonable and unfair. And he's also saying to plan now. He's kind of like, he's kind of, he's, he's talking about something that a lot of people are going to be forced to do down the road. And he's saying, don't just get in the situation and like react, but plan and know that when this happens, because it will, that your attitude and the way you react is going to be everything. He goes on and he says this, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So it is so interesting to me that this verse is in this because he talks later on about giving to people and being generous in the spirit with which we do that. And yet in a discussion about enemies and evil people and wicked people, he kind of just seems like kind of throws in this extra thing he's got, you know, this teaching, like I'll throw that in there on the, on the evil one, you know, kind of wrap that in. Why would that be here? when he's talking about doing something that we clearly don't seem to want to do. And the reason is this, is because first of all, the word beg, believe it or not, is not a good word. It's not something that people are either proud of or that people really like encountering, right? 
Encountering someone in need versus a beggar are two different things in our minds. And so what he's starting by is saying, there are those, and you all know who they are, and you all see them. He's saying this to the people around him, especially because they live in very small communities. We could get in our car, we could drive 15 miles away and be in a completely different world, and somebody at this time could not do that. And so they knew the people that were in need. They knew the people who, who had big-time, long-term need because they were falling on hard times. They knew the people who were in need and were suffering because they were just physically disabled and they couldn't do anything. They knew the people who were in need because they made every kind of bad choice that they could make and they were going to keep on making them probably because they encountered these people and they saw them on a regular basis. And, and he says, give to the one who begs from you. Give to them. Even though you see the very act of what they're doing and you see why and all the things behind it and you say, no. I don't think I need to do that. I don't think I need to help them. It's interesting though because in Deuteronomy, we read in the Old Testament that there were very specific rules that governed how people gave to others because the expectation was that the community of God was a place where people wouldn't really have need. And so if there was a a beggar or somebody who was in need long-term, that the people would somehow find a way to address that. And here's kind of some of what those rules said. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be unbegrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some and need on earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. So this is important. This characterizes God's attitude towards the poor, first of all, which is, yeah, I get it. They'll always be there. But that doesn't mean you don't do it. That actually means you do it. Okay, so that's one thing that's really important. You also see here, though, the culture of giving and how it operated. Now, it's interesting. They had a year of, uh, of jubilation, or what is it called here? The year of... Uh, the year of remission, right? Um, that's one of the several words that they called that. So every seven years, there was a year when all debts were canceled. So this is very realistic, right? Because here's what would happen. So you would typically, okay, so there were two ways that you would give money to those who were in need. One was anonymously through the temple. There was a way to give money through the temple, and it just kind of went to who needed it, and no one knew that you did it, and your left hand didn't know what your right hand was doing, and you didn't get credit for it, but it was okay. And then there were those that were not anonymous, because a lot of times they were loans, You would see a person or a family that was struggling and they were humiliated because of that. And so you would come to them or they would come to you and you would agree upon a way in which they could borrow money or you could help them. But ultimately the assumption is that they would pay you back. This is important. This is at the heart of the way that God wants us, I believe, to help one another, which is the idea that we say, I'm not just here to help this specific problem you have, but I am here to help you with the very humiliation that comes with the poverty that you're in, which means I want to help you not be in this situation tomorrow or the next day. Anybody that I've ever met who can say that they have, they have been a part of God using them to help somebody get on the right track or to, or to get financially to where they weren't in need like they were before, it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't like I saw this person, I helped them out one time, and then that was it. It's usually we have a relationship, they've been put in my life, they may be a member of my family. And so in an ongoing way, I've got a part here in this. 
And so what would happen is people would come and this would happen and then they'd be like, wait a second, isn't next year the year of, yeah, it is, it's year of mission. Okay, so if they don't pay me back in six months, then it's gone, right? And this is definitely something that people took into account. And so in Deuteronomy, they're like, no, 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 come on. That's bad, believe me. You don't wanna do that, right? And so when Jesus is talking to people about this idea of giving to those who are in need, I don't know why that's there. Okay, my slides are messed up. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What he is saying to them is this. He is saying that there are those who you will encounter, the beggar, who is somebody that you would almost put into the category of an enemy. You don't want to see them, you don't want to hear from them, you don't want to deal with them, and you think that if you give them something that it will just not do anything. I'm sure none of you have ever felt this way. And he says to give from the one who begs from you. Now he doesn't say how to give to them. And does that mean that we walk around giving money to people that we know it will just destroy their lives? No, not when we think money is the thing that will do that because there are other ways to help. There are other ways to help people and to give to people who beg. But then he goes on and he talks about the one who would borrow from you. And that person who would borrow from you is the one that God has potentially brought into your life that you could help in a lasting way. At cost to you? Sure. Because believe it or not, and I know this seems really negative to say this, but not all people who borrow from you pay you back. So the big question that I put up here before is this. Why? Why in the world would we do this? Why? Like I said, this is the one holdout. This is the thing that we're allowed. We're allowed to get back at people when they harm us. We're allowed to defend ourselves. We're allowed to defend our honor and the honor of our family, especially if we feel like it has anything to do with our God and our faith. So why in the world would we seek to live something that feels so unrealistic because of the scope of it? And there's two reasons why. The first reason is this. Because Jesus is calling us to live this way. And I said it back in the beginning because we don't actually have enemies. Because the enemy is not here. And the enemy is not out there, okay? The enemy is the one. The one from whom temptation and sin ultimately came from. The one who desires that we focus on each other and not the deception that he is causing. And because Jesus really does love all of us. Because our Father loves all of us equally. And this is not altruism, okay? So this is not Jesus saying, listen, guys, if you live this way, I promise it's going to go way better. I know it's hard, but think of it as an investment, okay? Think of it like, yes, it's tough. Yes, we all don't want to do that. But honestly, if you do it, your relationships will be better and your family will be better and your standing in society will be better and people will respect you and like you more because they'll look at you and they'll say, they never stuck up for themselves and they always do the right thing. And even though it's hard and they got slapped in the face, he didn't do anything. That's not why he says to do it. The Sermon on the Mount is not live and do the hard things and it will pay off in the end. The Sermon on the Mount is, listen, this is the way the universe works, okay? These people are not your enemies, so don't live like they are. 
live rather than out of compulsion to pay back, but with grace. And the other reason is this, because there is something much better to live for than revenge. He's not just saying ignore the thing that feels so good. Oh, it feels so good. It's so easy. It's so nice. Just ignore it. I know it's really hard, and I promise that maybe you'll go to heaven and it'll be good. No, that we're called to something that is fuller and that is better. We were reading through this as a staff this week in in a staff meeting on Monday, and Courtney Goodwin, she brought up um, Philippians 3, and I want to put it up here. Uh, And Paul, what he was writing about, the things that he had to give up, the things that he had to walk away from and do, and why he did that. Because Paul was this guy with this really impressive religious resume, basically, and he considered it all uh, rubbish. And he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why do we do these things? In order that we might gain Christ. I count it as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So when we live this way, we do so because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And living in the way that he tells us to live actually brings us to that place. There is something good that we are striving for. It isn't just try not to do the thing that you know you want to do and be really disciplined. Our desire is to gain Christ. And when we have Christ, it is much more satisfying and much truer and better than all of the vengeance that we can have and all of the self-righteousness that we can have and all of the, def- of the, all of the defense that we can give and all of the ways that we can hold on to our money and our things and say, you don't deserve them. Everybody knows you don't deserve them. And then let that be it. And here's... Also, why we can do this, and this is huge. We can do this because when we are wronged, it doesn't consume us. And I want you to think about that for a second. Because we could talk about all of this and we could say, yes, I want to live the way that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, but then someone wrongs you and it's all you can see. It's, it's everything in your field of vision. It is consuming your thoughts and your heart and your mind. And so we can talk about all this, but the fact is, when all you can see is how wronged you are, you will never be able to do what Jesus is calling you to do. And here's why we're not compelled to have vengeance. Because the Christian, when they are wronged, it isn't all they see. There's something bigger going on. There is something bigger that we are living for and that our entire life is about. And because of that, when someone wrongs you, you go, yeah, that stinked. No, I'm not going to lie. That was not good. But that's not everything. I can let it go. I can let it not consume me. And we all know what that feels like to let it consume you. And no amount of words is going to change how you feel in that moment. You will. You will seek revenge. You will make that person an enemy. You will not be able to love them or forgive them. You will not be able to give to them. You won't. But because the Christian can be wronged and can be harmed, can be persecuted even, and it just isn't everything in our world. We have freedom, and that's how this is possible. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you don't just call us to do things that are impossible. 
Lord, I was talking with somebody in the first service about how you get this far into the Sermon on the Mount and you have to catch yourself from making it just another list of rules, another way that you need to live that's even harder than the things before. That it is a lifestyle and it is a change of who you are fundamentally as a person and it always goes back to this. What do I believe about God? What do I believe about what Jesus is teaching? Because he says is, that his burden is easy, his, his, burden is, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So how does that true of this? Well, it's simple. It's simple because we are seeking Christ and because our eyes are fixed on him, then when we are wronged and when we are hurt, that doesn't destroy our lives as it often does others. And so we pray um, that you would forgive us for the enemies that we've made. Anyone, any of us in here, Lord, who, who need to just repent and ask for your forgiveness for the fact that we have been wronged and we have, seek, we have sought a vengeance and retribution when we've been wronged. But we just ask you to forgive us for that, Lord. And we pray that we would be able to move forward and live in a way that really shows freedom in Christ. Father, we also pray, um, just as we enter into worship and we, and we give of this offering to you, Lord. Father, our prayer is that this offering would be a seed that would be planted in Oregon City and the cities around it. Um, in the schools, Lord, that, um, that you would use this. And again, just as we prayed earlier today, that our giving would not be out of compulsion, out of guilt, out of obligation, out of fear, but that it would be given freely, Lord, out of joy and out of gratefulness for what you've done for us and who you are, Lord. And so I pray that as we bring up our offering, as we sing these songs, that it would be an act of worship to you and that as we seek to live this way, that it would be an act of worship to you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray, amen. We were talking about, um, there's a lot in Jesus' teaching here on, um, on how we treat those who wrong us and who hurt us and who owe, who owe us. And it's a lot to kind of process, I think, and try to take in and live by. And so I think to simplify it as much as possible, um, we are to be a people who rather than push, who pull. Not in a creepy way, like lassos and stuff, but, but our default ought to be to draw people to us, even those who harm us, especially those who often seek to harm us and to wrong us, who dishonor us and things like that. It's a simple concept and it's the posture of the kind of person that Jesus is talking about. If we need a reason for why we do that, it's because of this. We were enemies of his and he sought to draw us near and he chose to come in the flesh and be near to us. And that is the only way through which we can have life and so it's why we do that ourselves. Amen? Amen. Okay, God bless you guys. We'll see you on Christmas Eve. Have a great week.